0: Hello and welcome to The Game podcast from The Times, I'm Natalie Sawyer.
1: And I'm Gregor Robertson. We're here with you twice a week throughout the season for all the best reaction and analysis from some of the best football writers in the business. Joining us
0: today are the Times' very own Molly Hudson and Paul Hurst. Coming up, we'll ask just how good are Leicester as we look ahead to another weekend of Premier League action. We'll also discuss UEFA's slap-on-the-wrist punishment to Bulgaria. First, though, we're looking back on the midweek EFL Cup action. And it was an incredible round of EFL Cup games this week, highlighted by Liverpool leaving it late to book their place in the next round. It was an incredible game with Dibbo Karigi's last-ditch equaliser making it 5-5 and that sent the game straight to penalties. And it was the teenager, Curtis Jones, who stepped up and fired Liverpool into the quarter-finals. But will they be able to play it? Let's hear what Jurgen Klopp had to say after the game.
2: You have to think about these things, that you have a fixture list where one team cannot be part of all the games then you have to think about a fixture list, and hopefully it starts at one point. Hopefully it starts now. I really think that's fair. That this problem is obvious now. But we will not be the victim of this of this um, problem. We played tonight. We wanted to win it. We wanted. We did that. If they don't find a mo, if they don't find a, a proper date for us, then we cannot play the next round, and whoever's our opponent will go through. I think a lot of people from the Premier League were sitting in front of the television, hoping that Arsenal can do it, but. I'm sorry.
0: So Klopp says his side won't be able to play their Carabao Cup quarterfinal if the fixture cannot be rearranged to avoid a clash with the FIFA Club World Cup. Could we seriously see Liverpool Molly, pull out of the League Cup?
3: I think we could. I think for Klopp it's just one of those where he's almost put the gauntlet out to the Premier League to find a way around this. Um, and it's difficult because for him he's, he's already fighting so much. Obviously they're desperate to, to win that league and that's obviously the priority and then you've got the champions league and then with the club world cup and and the uh, carabao cup it's um it's just extra things on top of for him to almost worry about when actually they just need to be winning games so i think he he wouldn't be at all bothered really he he put out a young side yes it was a brilliant game and one that he said he really enjoyed but i don't think he would have been the most disappointed if they hadn't have gone through and he didn't have this extra headache to worry about so it, this headache that you've mentioned
0: there, Molly, it all comes down to the League Cup quarterfinal taking place in the week of the 16th of December. The Club World Cup is scheduled for December the 18th and the 21st. That's when Liverpool come into play at the Club World Cup. They go straight into the semi-final stage. Gregor, for you, what should be the priority for Liverpool?
1: The priority will be the Premier League, without doubt. Um, I have limited sympathy, to be honest, I think. Liverpool, like most of the kind of Premier League's elite, have huge squads and huge kind of depth uh, of of uh, of young players and young talent in their academy. And we saw that, we saw that the other night. We saw six players making a debut at Anfield, and they thrived. And it was a big, you know, it's a big step for them. And I think if they have to, uh, they'll continue to use those players. And I'm sure they will because we're, we're looking at they're gonna have nine games in the month of. Of December, I think, um, and a lot of travelling as well. So there's no doubt that Klopp will have to chop and change, um, and these young players are going to get more opportunities.
0: The way he talks, though, it's the suggestion that the Club World Cup comes before the League Cup uh, for, for Liverpool. You've mentioned the Premier League obviously is the priority for them uh, as well. Does that not make you think then that actually he should be sending his best players out to Qatar? Because wouldn't you rather have them in England with less travel? and just focus on domestic matters?
1: I just think it's the the prestige of the Club World Cup is, is different. You know, the Carabao Cup is a competition that's kind of belittled in the early rounds every single year. And then we see some thrilling spectacles with these young players that we've often not seen before. And people go, hang on a minute, actually, it's it's quite good fun, this. Um, and there's no reason why that's not going to continue. You know, I think these players are very talented and... This is an opportunity for them. It's an opportunity for them to to shine, and I think we know the we know the order of importance. The Premier League is number one. The Club World Cup is something that has some prestige, and I think they're just clearly above the Carabao Cup, and then the Carabao Cup is, comes last. But as I say, it offers an opportunity for these young guys.
0: It does give them an opportunity, as you say. And he did make a load of changes for the game against Arsenal, which they came through to win. So, in that sense, Molly, he does have the squad at his disposal to be able to put out two different teams at two different competitions.
3: Yeah, he does. But I think it's it's just an extra thing to consider. Obviously, in the week when they're training, who's going to how how do they prepare for these games and also keep. The players that are going to play in the really important games happy and making sure they're doing the right thing in the week. So, it, you know, yes, they're still winning games, but obviously day to day is making his life more difficult. But, you know, as Gregor said, he's in that position where he has a big squad. There are such a ton of young players there and you know, for them, I'm sure they're not complaining about the extra games and getting the chance to score the winner in front of the cop end at Anfield, you know.
0: <laughs> I think you're right there. But what happened in this game, Gregor? I mean, we've said it a number of times, it just simply was incredible.
1: Uh, just one of those gloriously wacky nights, I think, where... Um, <laughs> Balmy, it was. It was, yeah, where <laughs> a kind of combination of, of you know, the naivety of the young young players and there were spells where they were kind of just... It's like they were just giving it to each other over and over again. And then there was the odd moment of absolute brilliance, you kind of wonder strike here and there. Huxley Chamberlain's Joe Willicks was an absolute cracker as well. So, you know, it was a kind of, I think it was a combination of the naivety and the errors and perhaps over exuberance, even. You know, players might be trying to do too much sometimes. And then other times, things came off and it was kind of just an absolute, absolute joy to watch, really.
0: Have you ever been involved
1: in anything similar? I had a little look earlier and... uh, What? You
0: can't remember if you've ever been involved in at least a
1: nine-goal thriller. The closest I've had was this really, really glamorous uh, 5-4 defeat to Accrington Stanley when I was at Northampton. And I think that was the same in that there was a lot of errors. <laughs> one from me, even I and mean, I think I had a little mix up with the goalkeeper, if I remember Not right. Not an own goal. Not an own goal, but oh. you know, one of those where it's you go, I go, you go, I go. Oh, I went. Miscommunication yeah. then. So, um, yeah, it's, they don't come along very often. It's just the uh, combination of lots of errors like that and uh, the odd kind of wonder goal that's, that kind of combines to to make some spectacle.
0: Manchester City marched on to the EFL Cup quarterfinal on Tuesday night with a comfortable 3-1 win over Southampton. Sergio Aguero's double set up a last eight tie with Oxford United, but it was another name that actually caught the eye, and it was the 18-year-old Tommy Doyle. A first-team debut unlike any other for the teenager, as he walked out with a fan base of City support already. Strange, eh? Well, that is because Tommy's two granddads played for the club and won Major trophies during their time there. Joining us now to look back at Tommy Doyle's Manchester City debut is the Times' very own Paul Hurst. And Paul, you had a chat with Glimpardo, who the City legend and one of Tommy's grandads this week, didn't you? Tell us a little bit about that conversation you had.
4: Yes, sir. Well, we spoke to Tommy Doyle after the match on Tuesday, and he he spoke about his, his history with Man City through so his um his grandfathers, who, who both both played for the club, Glimpardo and. And Mike Doyle and Mike Doyle's sadly no longer with us but Glen is and you know, I just thought it'd be nice to kind of get his side of the story see what it was like for him to watch you know watch his grandson make his debut um, and you know it was really kind of a, a good thing to, uh, really kind of uplifting um, conversation I had with him um, You know, he, he was really kind of proud of his grandson um, he won three uh, major trophies when he was at City played for them for over 300 times so you know it meant a lot to him and I think it meant a lot to the club as well because of you know they, they want their academy players coming through so you know they were happy for him to get on the pitch and, and show you know the rest of the uh, rest of the world that their academy is, is working.
0: Well that's it with all the money that's gone into transfers at the club I'm, I'm guessing seeing academy players come through shows that there is investment working there as well?
4: Yes, they have put a lot of money into, into the academy. It's, um, it's it is a, a, a major thing for the for the owners. I remember going to um, speaking to people at City three and a half years ago, and they were saying that by the end of the 2021 um, season, they wanted half of the squad to be homegrown and half of the squad to have come through with the academy. So that, that's their ambition. I mean, it looks highly unlikely that mm. uh, that will happen now, because it's only got really. Still, and uh, and Tommy Dollar coming through, and Eric Garcia, but they uh, they they pinched him from Barcelona at quite a late age of his uh, stage of his development. But um, you know that's their aim. Whether they can do it or or not is, is another thing. But they've definitely got some very talented under eighteen, under nineteen, under twenty three players there.
0: How um, impressive was Tommy on his debut?
4: He was good he played really well, he was very tenacious, very very energetic uh, very driven um, he lost the ball once then went it back straight away um Obviously Southampton weren't exactly at the races that night. they just basically sat deep and kind of defended it was a it was limitation exercise from them but he did he did well i mean he was playing at the base of the midfield as the number six, so he usually likes to play a bit further forward so um, yeah, it was, wasn't the easiest of the day, was in that respect because he was out of position, but he, he played pretty well.
0: And from that debut, then that he's had, how close do you think he, it could be that we'll see him a bit more regularly in the side?
4: I, I think we'll see him in the next round of the cup. I think yeah. that's, that's the next time we'll see him again. This weekend, I, I, I don't think we'll see him because Fernandinho is back from suspension, mm-hmm. so it's it's looking unlikely that he'll he'll play. I think Gundogan will come back into that mid- midfield as well, so. I mean that that midfield is just so hard to break in. So Phil Foden's obviously had this experience as well. That he's got, you know, he's got De Bruyne, he's got David Silva, Rodri, Fernandinho uh, in front of him. So you know, there's a lot, a lot of tough competition there. So going to have to fight hard over the next few years to uh, make a regular first team spot.
0: Yeah, and as I mentioned already, you know, he he's he's come on, made his debut, has had two granddads who are legends at the club. Did the did the fans know who he was? Did they know the history behind him and his family? I think
4: they did. Yeah, I think quite a lot of a lot of fans are you know aren't just you know they didn't just start supporting the club when they uh, got taken over in, in two thousand eight, and yeah. there was actually a banner uh, of Mike Doyle, um, Tommy other uh, granddad who you know, was unfurled before the match. So. Someone had got a got a tip off, <laughs> um, but um, uh, yeah. So, so I think they do. They did know it, and they, do, they did appreciate it. So every time he, you know, if he made a mistake, they were they were quite lenient with him, and they were very, you know, encouraging him a lot. So they they knew his history. And when you've got that kind of history with the club, you afford afforded a little bit more time to settle in, and you're given a little bit more encouragement as well.
0: Paul, thank you.
4: Cheers. See you later.
0: As great as it is to have Tommy Doyle make that debut in the Carabao Cup, it's going to be frustrating, isn't it, for for himself and knowing that perhaps it will be very difficult for him to become a regular in that Manchester City side when we know Phil Foden, for example, is not able to break into that team, Gregor.
1: Absolutely. I think I think the first thing you've got to say is it's a remarkable achievement to have, done, yeah. to have made that, that, that appearance in the first place. Um, not many do. Not many break through. So he's he's taken that first step which is a huge step. Um but you're absolutely right. I think you know when you look at the kind of the sheer volume of of players that Manchester City have I think they had I think they've got 32 players out on loan in 13 countries as it stands which is remarkable. Mm. So you just you don't know what the kind of the next stage is going to be for them whether it's going to be to take a loan step um and get first team experience in your football or whether they rate him. It seems to be when they rate the player really highly, as they do Phil Foden, they want to keep them there. Yeah, and he learns every day in training with with Pep Guardiola. Um, Pochettino has got a similar approach, you know. So there, it'll be interesting to see what his his next step in his, in in his development is going to be. But it's a huge step he's taken and uh, obviously one that him and his family can't be very proud of.
3: Yeah,
0: absolutely. Uh, just staying with Manchester City, they were knocked out of the Women's Champions League by Atletico Madrid for a second consecutive season last night after a 2-1 second leg loss in Spain. Molly, what's the reaction been to this?
3: Um, it's a difficult period for Manchester City, which particularly on the women's side is pretty rare. Um, so they've, it's the first time they've lost three games in a row since May 2015. Um, and obviously what comes with that is pressure, pressure on the manager, Nick Cushing. Um, I don't think it's necessarily to saying that he isn't the right man to take it forward, but it's more looking at the squad and looking, you know, what maybe could they have done in the summer? What additions could they make? Obviously, they lost Nikita Paris to Leon, and that is something that is becoming a frustration for the fans. Almost every season, they lose their best player to Leon or they go elsewhere. You look at Lucy Bronze at right back that's never really been replaced. Then they were unlucky um, in the first leg of this tie. They lost Efa Mannion. She uh, ruptured her ACL, and she was one of the summer signings that looked to be settling in really well. Um, so I think it's almost City feel like they've re- gone as far as they can in Europe. You know, they're always going to be up there fighting domestically, whether it's the Women's Super League, the FA Cup. We know how successful they've been in that, but that. A step extra in, in Europe, it feels like then they haven't quite invested enough or made the right signings to really go and progress. And you know, Atletico Madrid with a better side, and actually, both times they've played them in the last two seasons, they've been really impressive. It's that
0: time of the year, your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Now, to some disappointing news, but news we perhaps all expected. Bulgaria have been ordered to play just two matches behind closed doors, one of those suspended for two years. For their fans, racist abuse of England players in a Euro 2020 qualifier. Bulgaria have also been fined £65,000. Joining us now to discuss the punishment set out by UEFA, it is the Times' chief football writer, Henry Winter. Henry, let's first of all just get your reaction then to uh, UEFA's punishment.
2: People say, well, disappointing, disheartened. But I think what this shows now is that the players really have to take matters into their own hands because they can't trust the authorities to, uh, to, to, to come up with the proper punishment. And they're just going to have to walk off. So in a, slightly, in a slightly strange way, even though it's a complete embarrassment for UEFA and their supposed attempt to sort of tackle down on the disease, as Cheferin, the, uh, their president, called it, of, uh, of racism, I actually think it's, it accelerated the process towards players walking off. Which clearly, anyone who's been watching racism and these incidents with uh, with English teams um, in Europe over the past sort of 20 years, it was was going to happen. Quite rightly, you know, the FA and everyone saying that you know English football needs to look at itself and, and society, and we've got problems over here. We saw that Aaron game, um, but the uh you know the Bulgarians are serial offenders and probably when the, the you know the next draw gets made England'll be drawn to play in Sofia the so look England will walk off at some point and UEFA's lack of appreciation of the problem uh, has just accelerated that
1: Henry do you think that if the the players had walked off England England had walked off in Sofia the punishment would be different
2: uh, well i think there will probably be one or two people in UEFA who want to punish England and um, who would say uh, this is they haven't gone with uh, with protocol. I mean, the ridiculous thing is, is that it's just showed that UEFA's three-step protocol simply didn't work because there was continued racist abuse in the in, in the second half. The England players stayed on, and the referee and the UEFA delegate should have taken them off. So, would the punishment have been different? I think UEFA might at some point have a a fit of conscience and realise that it's not fit for purpose, that it's disciplinary process is not fit for purpose, that the rhetoric that it comes out with in slogans and in hashtags are just simply not going to work and maybe actually have to beef up their disciplinary process because at the moment they're a laughingstock.
0: Henry, why are they not listening then? Why are they not listening to everyone who is saying what England experienced what other countries have experienced when we've played these matches, and they've and they've had to suffer racism. Why are UEFA not looking at this as a serious, serious issue?
2: Look at UEFA. Just look at the makeup of it. Uh, They are they don't exactly reflect the diversity in the modern game. They don't reflect diversity in say a modern society like uh, like England. Okay, maybe maybe they reflect Switzerland a bit more, but actually, if you go to Switzerland. You know, it's a very diverse country, particularly in the uh, in, in the cities. So I just think they are they're outdated. Look, I've got friends who work there. I know a lot of people who work there, There's some really good people there who are absolutely hurting and embarrassed by the lack of activity and the lack of an appreciation that they could make a difference. They could set a, a benchmark almost in, in society for the way people should behave. Um, and yet they've abdicated that uh, that responsibility. Actually, sadly, to no one's great surprise.
0: Do you, uh, do you have your own view on what the punishment should have been for Bulgaria?
2: Yeah, they should have been kicked out of the next tournament. I mean, everyone said, oh, you know, let's, <laughs> the, the actual game that they've been suspended for is completely meaningless because, mm. you know, you, you can't kick them out of this tournament because their footballers have been so poor. I mean, th- th- this is not... Look, Natalie, you, you've got strong connections in the country, and it's a country you know, I've been to, and the majority of the people, the England fans, met in Sofia, had an absolute brilliant time. But, you know, there are cafes that you can go to there and you see the SS insignia. There's a grounds near um, where, the, uh, where the England match was played, and I went running past it, and I didn't post the pictures on, on social media, because I thought it would be a bit provocative. But some of the insignia on the walls there, you know, you know straight from 1942. So, you know, you've, there, there are issues there. Um, how do you do it? I think that it's, the English can't take too moral a high ground, but the FA have sort of addressed certain things in this country. I think the media is more enlightened in this country. I think the Turkish press have got to look at themselves. That press conference, you know, I don't want to slag off other journalists, but there were some of them in there who were just part of the problem. You know, there's absolutely no understanding of the issue. The coach, obviously, he's gone, the Bulgarian FA football union, they sort of embarrassed themselves. there have been eruptions there. Um, I think the country has to to look at themselves. But in a way, football can only really tackle what goes on in grounds. Mm. And you wait, it should been far stronger. And I've actually said to the Bulgarian, listen, this is three times that you've done this, and you can actually then take it further back. You know, you're just not wanted in 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 the in the European football party, and and ban them for the next one because they would have felt that financially, they would have felt that emotion. I mean, but Bulgaria's a proud country, and they've had some great players, and to see Stoichkov breaking down on television was 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 very emotional for people who you know I covered his career, Mm -hmm. and to see him in in pain like that. But the country's got to address it, the football side of Bulgaria have got to address it, and UEFA have got to take more of a leap.
0: Just finally, with you, Henry, has there been any reaction from the FA? Have you spoken to them at all to, to find out what they made of the punishment?
2: Well, the FA came out with a statement and it was sort of a bit sort of FA blase. I mean, they should have taken a far stronger lead. I think now that, I think that just talking to some of the players and the mood amongst the players is they realise that wafer aren't going to help them. The FA, with respect going to sort of try and help them but actually it's now down to Raheem Sterling, Marcus Rashford Callum Hudson-Odoi, Tyrone Minx, Harry Kane the captain to actually say right, enough is enough we've got to walk off. I thought I was really proud of the way the England players behaved but I still think they should have taken the decision and and walked off and I think what UEFA's lack of activity uh, in terms of a proper sanction, I think now that decision has been made and they will walk off.
0: Henry, thank you. My pleasure. So, Henry, they're saying that England players will walk off in the future, but obviously, more recently, we have seen a team walk off alongside another in unison, in in unity, we could say, and that was the uh, FA Cup preliminary qualifier between Haringey and Yeovil, and that match had to be replayed because it had to be was abandoned, and you went to that match this mid this midweek, Molly.
3: Yeah, and I think. You know, Yeovil went on to win that game and, as we all wrote in our match reports, that almost felt secondary to the fact that the game had had to be replayed in the first place. Um, you know, there was sterile zones to make sure that f- there wasn't any fan violence. You know, there was banners all around the ground, you know, show races and the red card. But, you know, the, the Haringey manager, Tom Lozu, had said, you know, after the game, yes, he said that perhaps Yeovil should have been banned, should have been thrown out of the competition. But he also said that that decision to take the players off, it was very much on him. There was sort of no help for the officials and he was talking about maybe the FA should should help or there should be some sort of protocol in that situation that, that puts less almost stress onto him because it was his responsibility to take those players off after hearing the alleged racist abuse. Um, and I think that was his frustration that there was so much focus on that and then focus on his actions. I mean, he was asked, would he do it again? And he said, of course, I wouldn't go into a situation wanting to take my players off. But if that happened again, I would have no choice. But I think his point was, yes, he's taken them off. But now what has happened? What has really changed following him taking them off? And the truth of it for the club is that they've just replayed the game and they've lost. Mm.
0: Is there a sense then from him that maybe officials like FA or even higher UEFA simply just don't care? This is an issue they're not that bothered about.
3: Yeah, exactly that. He, he said after the game actually that he he personally didn't understand how, it, uh, how bad it was until he looked into his players' eyes and saw what it had done to them. And that's what he talked about, the, the UEFA punishment to Bulgaria. And he said, you know, do they really understand? Have they really experienced it? And the answer is no. And he said that is part of the issue. So as Henry said, you know, making sure that board that makes those decisions is diversified itself would help, I think.
0: And he said there that Yovel should have been thrown out. Henry thinks Bulgaria should be banned from playing in the next qualifying competition what do you think? Is that the right course of action?
1: I don't think it's easy. I think I've said this before. I think the punishment that has been handed down does appear to be a bit of a joke really. um you know people make some comparisons that are a little bit facile really they're not the The fact that the ground's gonna be closed will hit them hard in the pocket, but nowhere it's nowhere near enough. That's clear. That's the first thing to make absolutely clear, but I also think we're giving you a little bit too much credit if we think that if England had walked off, the punishment would be significantly harsher Mm. or even any different. I'm not sure. I really am not sure about that. So I think, the you know, I also have said before I'm slightly uncomfortable about any of us telling the players who are on the pitch and on the receiving end of racial abuse what they should and shouldn't be doing. Mm. And I understand that if there are protocols that they weren't followed properly either. So, The whole thing's a complete mess. But really, the discussion has to be about what the the punishments are. And they're clearly not enough right now. Um, Throwing them out, yes. Banning for another tournament. I mean, what about just banning them from playing on home soil?
0: That's something I was arguing, I must say, before. Because from a player's perspective, to be thrown out of a competition for something that isn't your fault, I mean, that's pretty harsh.
1: Yeah, yeah. I there's so many considerations. That's yeah. that's my point. And this, you know, at the end of the day, the, ma- the most important thing is that the players are safe and not subjected to this on the pitch. So there's yeah. going to be some collateral damage, but I think that th- you know, throwing them out this, throwing them out the the qualifiers now is going to have no effect because they're, they've been useless. Mm. And banning them from another tournament, it's 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 a possible option. But I think, as I say, if we were to look at them not, not playing on home soil because these players shouldn't have to go there even in the knowledge that there's a good chance they're going to be racially abused. You know, it mm-hmm. puts them in a difficult position in the first place so that would take that off. It would also hit them very hard financially I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I think that's really, I personally think that's where the conversation has has to be. I think it has to be looking at what sanctions are imposed but we're, again we're talking about as if we have any influence on it. You know this is UEFA of a a track record of failure in this. And, you know, the the Bulgarian Football Association have a track record of doing very little about this. Mm-hmm. Um so I I wouldn't really expect any any great advances in the near future.
0: That is it, Molly, there's there's no quick fix to this unfortunately.
3: No. And I think, you know, even we sat here and we have our own different opinions as to what could have been done, should have been done, and then you think what well, UEFA have to think about as well you know there are there are so many options and there are so many ramifications of those to not only the people that have done wrong but also you know as Gregor says to the players that that haven't that are caught up in this so I think it's yeah there's certainly no easy answer and I think it it doesn't feel as though it's going to be resolved sort of overnight. Leicester continue
0: their fine form this season during the week with a 3-1 win away at Burton, following on from their record equaling 9-0 win at Southampton on Friday. This Sunday, they head to Crystal Palace and could potentially move up to second in the Premier League this weekend. We are over a quarter of the way through the season now, so even if this is only their little secret, where do you think Leicester will be setting their targets now, Molly?
3: I think it has to be top four. I mean, it's not. You know, as we say, we're nearly a quarter way through the season. It's not like it's been two, three, even four games now where they've been good and you're wondering, you know, can they really stay up there? And mainly because not only have Leicester been good for a prolonged spell, everyone else has had their struggles for a prolonged spell. It hasn't been, you know, the first two or three games, you you know, they've, they've started poorly or new managers have come in and they're not quite there. But actually the problems, you know, for Spurs for Arsenal for United they they've continued whereas Leicester have found almost a consistent level of quality um and I think yeah definitely top 4 I think they've they could actually I saw them when they played Burnley um and I I think they can actually play a big part in the title race potentially because they're the, the exact kind of team that you know Man City and Liverpool wouldn't want to face so they
0: could potentially move up to second with uh, the weekend's results, Gregor. Uh, Molly's saying a top four spot is realistic for them, perhaps this season. They always say they don't
1: look at the table, but <laughs> I'm sure you all do, you footballers. But
0: <laughs> is a top four spot a serious aim for them?
1: Absolutely. I think I think that th- along with Chelsea, I think they're the, they're the two teams that look kind of like they're going to be challenging for those two positions and actually they look like they've got better sides than than the teams below them, like, you know, Arsenal apart from the front three, they look slightly disjointed still, and they've a lot of, lot of off-field issues, Tottenham a lot of off-field issues, Manchester United, I think Leicester simply have a better team than, than them at the moment um, and there's a lot to be there's so much to be kind of excited about if you're a Leicester fan, I think when you look at the team, they've got a core of players who are Kind of all between ages 21 and 24, who potentially could be with them for a long time and and develop. They've got a manager who is, you know, I think you know he was a kind of bit of a figure of fun at some some points, and he's the way he sort of his tenure ended at Liverpool, and that's always a caveat. People say, no matter what you think of Brendan Rodgers, he's good. Mm-hmm. He's a, he's kind of reaffirming how how good he is. He is a a superb coach and. You know, I've spoken to Leicester players who have been blown away by the, the sort of level of detail the work he does on the training ground, and they're playing a hundred passes more per game than under Claude Puel, um, and I think, and you know the only the only thing is you saw when Harry Maguire was the the offer came from Manchester United his head was turned and he left. the The danger is they've got some really good players, as I say, in a young age bracket who have got. Big resale value, room to develop. Um, I'm sure there will be people kind of coming looking for them in the future. James Madison's obviously one of those. Wolfred and Deedy's been remarkable. Harvey Barnes just keeps going from strength to strength. Ben Chilwell, left back, he's going to be England's left back for, for quite some time, I think. Um, so, yeah, as I said, a lot to be excited about. But even Rogers, you know. It could be in the fullness of time that people realise how good he is and you know someone like Arsenal comes along and says, Hello Brendan. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I guess Molly, that is the problem though, that that Leicester are still in that position where they, they may well have to fight off clubs above them who will want their players, who may want their manager. That's the position they still find themselves in.
3: Yeah, of course. But I think what you get the impression from this Leicester team this time around compared to the, the title winning side is that this team, there are a number of very, very good players. You know, Gregor's just listed some of them there. I mean, you look at Schmeichel and Vardy, who have been from that season that are just consistently so good for Leicester. But in a way, you, you pick up that title winning side and you pick Angolo Kante and Riyad Mahrez. They were so good and they stood out so high compared to everybody else that they were always going to be picked off. They were, you know, they were going to want to play Champions League football week in, week out because they're good enough and they were able to do that. This team, because it's so young and it's still developing, actually, you look at the likes of Harvey Barnes, you know, Yuri Tillemans, he's chosen to come to Leicester and I'm sure there were other clubs interested. Actually, there's a good chance they can keep this side together and grow it, you know, even if it is only for a season, two seasons, rather than players like Mahrez and Kante that had reached their peak and they were... For their there for everyone to see how good they were and how high their quality was, whereas players like Chilwell, they're still growing and they're growing at Leicester and they're growing under the influence of Rodgers and I think that that gives them the advantage this time that maybe there's that chance to sort of keep hold of them just maybe for that one season longer
1: and they don't they they don't have to sell that's the other thing we have to make clear you know mm. they made they took that stance with Harry Maguire and that's why they got a huge sum of money for him and there is something about. Leicester's kind of spirit and you know we we saw Yuri Thielman's chose to chose to go to Leicester City I'm sure there would have been other opportunities they moved quickly for him and it's kind of we've seen again in, in the sort of the morning the one year anniversary of of uh, the death of their owner in the helicopter accident the kind of unity of that club and the senior professional has also uh, I've spoken to one or two for writing a piece about that actually Andy King someone who's at Rangers they were saying that, you know, they've almost they almost took it upon themselves, the players that were part of that title winning miracle, to sort of cement that team spirit and the unity and the sort of that was a huge factor in, in what took Leicester to the to the title and, and and part of their story. So they're trying to sort of hand that down to this new generation and that's pretty powerful. And I think, you know, I don't say there'll be in a rush to leave, but they are gonna be I think there'll be some decisions and also we're ten games in here. Maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. I think But I definitely think they're going to be in the running for the top four, definitely.
0: Molly, you mentioned, of course, the title-winning team of 2015-16. Our lovely producer, Joe wants me to ask this question. This current side that we're seeing, would they be able to beat that Leicester side that won the title, from what you're seeing? Are they better? Which I think you've already alluded to. I think it's
3: what I alluded to earlier. It's just different. I think you look at that team that won the title, and that spine of the team, Schmeichel, Kante, Mahrez, Vardy... Individually, they were of the highest quality. Whereas now it looks as though the quality is spread about. Yes, they've still got Schmeichel and Vardy, and they've got the likes of tillemans Chilwell, Madison, and players like that. I think it'd probably be quite close if you played the two together because you know and found some way to clone Vardy and Schmeichel, um, <laughs> because they they have different strengths. I think if you if you look back, they probably relied a lot more back then on Kante and his ball winning and his energy and Mahrez and his moments of magic, whereas now it's spread more across the team. And I think Rodgers alluded to that after that Burnley game, saying that, you know, the wingers need to step up and be as good as Mares was in that season.
0: Gregor, who would come out on top? The okay. Leicester
3: team of 2015-16 or
0: the, the team we're seeing right now? OK,
1: I'll enter La La Land for a second. <laughs> uh, I think the title-winning team still because the the style of the way they played, no one seemed to be able to get get past it and kind of overcome them. We we know they kind of had one of the lowest percentages of possession in the league, and they played with Vardy on the break. Um, and no no one could get 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 around it. I think the current team is far more attractive to watch. Mm. I mean, that was an exciting team to watch, Vardy on the break, and people like Mares and and as you say, Cante. But I think um, I think they would still win it, and there was a sort of. Like there was something special that year about them. No one was going to stop them, not yeah. even themselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: producer Joe with another humdinger of a thanks for question. That, Joe, yeah. <laughs> well, that is it for now. Many thanks to our guests today, Molly Hudson, Paul Hurst, and Henry Winter.
1: Remember, you can subscribe to the Times and the Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet.
0: It is just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search the Times subscription for more information. Have a good weekend, and we'll be back on Monday.
3: The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk.